Hey, good morning. Welcome to Westbridge Church. My name's Jeremiah. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's so great to have you with us. I want to say hello to everybody joining us on our online campus, and uh, appreciate you uh, tuning in that way. If you're in a parent viewing room, <clears throat> that's a great option. If you have small children, you prefer to keep with you during the service. And uh, anybody uh, watching in our cafe today, great to have you there as well. Uh, man, uh, five and five is right after this service. I know Chandler mentioned it, but I just want to mention it again. Five and five is five things about Westbridge Church in five minutes or less. So. Here's what I want to say. If we've never met before, I would love for you to come say hi. I'm going to be standing right there, right after service. Uh, if you have come for a long time and you just want to get a little bit more information, you can get five important things in five minutes or less. And if this is your first time or your second time or your third time, you've started coming recently and you just want to learn more about who we are as a church, five and five is the place to do it. So any, if you fall into any of those categories, I'd love to see you right down here right after service today. Now, uh, we are uh, in week two of this series uh, called The New You. We're walking through what the Apostle Paul wrote in the first century to a group of people in the city of Ephesus. As we jump into week two, uh, I'm thinking about this week about when I was a kid and we went to the, uh, the county fair. And anytime we'd go to the county fair uh, or the, you know, they'd have uh, games and uh, carnival games and all this kind of stuff. Uh, one of the things that I always loved, and they still have it at like uh, amusement parks, is the House of Mirrors. Anybody remember this? Anybody else go to the House of Mirrors when you were a kid? And it's all funny because it makes, your, it makes you all distorted and crazy and they're all bendy. And uh, you'd go and, and look in front of one of the mirrors and what you'd find would be, uh, you'd kind of be like 18 feet tall and it would like stretch out your body and then you'd put your hands down to your sides and your fingers would stretch down to your toes and you look like some kind of alien. And then you'd step over to the side and you'd be two feet tall and 10 feet wide and you'd look like Jabba the Hutt. And I just remember like looking at those and like you're trying to move around and make yourself look all distorted and crazy. And in more recent years, uh, what's happened is that uh, Mac computers, when Apple computers came out uh, over the last several years, they've added a feature. There's an app that comes automatically on every one of these called Photo Booth. And in Photo Booth, you can actually push a button and create all kinds of weird distortions. And it's like it's a funny mirror. And so uh, we actually spent a lot of time yesterday looking at, because my kids would be in there unbeknownst to us, uh, just messing around and filming video after video after video of themselves in distortion. And so we just were like dying laughing this last week, looking at some of these. Uh, yesterday we were watching a bunch of these. And I want to show you a couple of pictures of, uh, these are two of my boys. Uh, the first one is my youngest son, Liam. He's got a giant head. Uh, again, it's like a funny mirror, but it's just like on, on a camera lens, right? So he's got, I think he even has like a nickname for this character, Giant Brain or something like that. And, uh, and then this is my other son. He's <laughs> very distorted. His hair, his hair is not distorted. His hair actually looks like that, but um, <laughs> the rest of them is. And then there were so many videos. I just wanted to pick one and show you guys just some of the, some of the hilarity that goes on when we're not looking. My name is Tommy. <laughs> I kid you not, there's about 150 of those uh, on our computer right now. And so we were just watching through them and just dying laughing yesterday. And he here's why I show you that. In reality, it's very, very easy for us as human beings, it's just human nature, to stand in front of a mirror and see a distorted image of ourselves. Not distorted physically, but when we look at ourselves, our tendency is to view ourselves through the lens of our past, through the lens of our brokenness, through the lens of our sin, through the lens of our shame. And it's very difficult for us 
to see ourselves the way that God sees us. Sometimes it's difficult for us to uh, recognize that God sees us through the lens of Jesus. And when we have a difficult time thinking about ourselves the way that God thinks about us, it starts to impact our behavior. The mind is a powerful thing. Uh, A couple of professors did a study uh, several years ago from Dartmouth College. They did a study where they brought in a group of people and then they, they had makeup artists put a fake scar in a prominent place on their face. And then they said, now we're going to send you in to meet with people that you've never met before with this scar on your face. And we just want to see how they react, knowing that you have this very visible scar in a prominent place on your face. And they said, now, hold up, before we, before we take you in there, we got to touch up the scar a little bit. So they brought the makeup artist in and said, let me just touch that up before you head in. And what they actually did is they removed the scar. And the person that had the scar on their face didn't know it. They thought they were just touching up the makeup. So in their minds, they still had the scar on their face. And in reality, it didn't exist at all. And they'd walk in and they'd meet with somebody that they didn't know. And they'd have like this interview with them. And then they came back and they would ask them, how was that interview? And the person over and over and over again, thinking they still had a scar on their face, would respond, man, that was so awkward. I could tell they were really staring at that scar. You know what? Uh, They treated me really differently than they would have treated me if I didn't have that scar on my face. In fact, a lot of them said, I felt really discriminated against and some of the people were actually really mean to me. And the reality was the scar didn't exist. It was just in their minds because the mind is a powerful thing. And so the apostle Paul is writing to a group of people in Ephesus and he's reminding them, don't see yourself the way that you see yourself. Don't, don't see this distorted image of yourself through the lens of your past and your sins and your brokenness and your shame because God sees you differently. And so he's writing to a group of people. And it, it, this whole book, you know, the way that we have it, it's really a letter that Paul wrote to people in the city of Ephesus. It's a letter, but we have it kind of broken into chapter and verse. And if we could split it into two halves, first three chapters, next three chapters, uh, here's a quick review from last week. We would say, man, the first three chapters are very, very vertical. It's everything that God has done for you and I. And so God has, has given us his, his grace. He's invited us into his family, all of the things that uh, that. God has done for you and me, and he's building a new you. He's building a whole new community and a new society of new yous. And then you go to the next three chapters, and it's very horizontal. It shifts, and it's because of this new society of new people, because of everything God has done, here is how we ought to behave. Here is how we ought to treat one another. And that's why this point from last week is so important for us to remember throughout this entire series. What we've done does not determine who we are. What we've done, our actions do not determine our identity, but who we are ought to determine what we do. That should determine how we live because once you know who you are, then you know how to live. And Paul wants to remind us, do not get caught up in seeing yourself through the lens of your past and your sin and your brokenness. Instead, remember how God sees you. And so I just want to read these verses that we read last week as just as a quick review. Paul writes to them and says this, even before God made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. Remember, it doesn't mean that we are without fault. It just means he chooses to see us that way because of Jesus. Now, this is the critical thing for us to remember as we get into the next section of this letter. And that's what we're going to dive into today because for most of us, myself included, it's still very difficult to see ourselves the way that God sees us. It's difficult for us to move away from the distorted image of our past, 
of our brokenness, of our sin. In fact, when we think about ourselves in relation to God, uh, whether you grew up in church, whether you've been around church for a really long time, or whether you're just exploring church, and maybe you're even just dating us and trying to figure out what kind of a weird cult this is. No matter what, the way that we view ourselves in relation to God, when we think about ourselves and when we think about where we stand in relation to God, there is a gap between us and God. In fact, you could view it like this. There's you and there's God and there's a gap in between, right? And there's this gap between us and and we know that there's nothing we can do in our own power to just fill that gap. Just do whatever we can to fill that gap. The message of the scriptures, the message of Jesus, the message of the good news is everything that God has done to fill this gap for us, right? And so we all have standards that we've set for ourselves that we weren't even able to keep, let alone God's standards. And the only way that we can be seen right in God's eyes is because of the one incredible word that describes what God has done for every single one of us, grace. Grace is what closes the gap between me and God, between you and God. It's the only thing. You can't behave your way. You can't earn your way. The message of the good news of Jesus is that Jesus came into our world and he did what we couldn't do for ourselves. That's, that's how this gap gets closed between you and God, between me and God, is grace, right? And Paul would remind his readers over and over and over again, who you, what you've done doesn't determine who you are. We can have right standing with God. We're a part of God's family because of grace. Now, that's, a, that's an incredible message, but there's a whole nother gap that exists that Paul's going to address in these verses we're going to read today. And this is the gap between you and the new you. This is the gap between here's who I am and here's who I want to be, right? And I recognize I fall short of here's, here's the ideal who God is creating me to be and who God's shaping me to be, and yet here's where I'm at today. And that could be this. There's you and there's the new you, the you that God is shaping, the you that God is creating you to be. And as followers of Jesus, we put our trust in Jesus to bridge the gap between us and God. That's called grace. But for some reason, when it comes to this gap between you and the new you, we think that all depends on us. We just have to, we just have to work really hard at being a good person. We just have to work really hard at, you know, just, just doing good things. You, you, gotta, you gotta be better. You gotta do gooder. And then you can measure up. And that will close that gap. And we often end up disappointed because just like this gap is filled with grace, the, 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 me and the gap between me and God, the gap between you and the new you is also filled with grace. The only way to move from where I am to who I believe God has created me to be is grace. It's the only way to do it. In, in fact, a, a great way to say it would be like this. We're not only saved by grace, We live by grace. We're not just rescued because of grace. We are actually created by God to walk in grace, to live by his grace. Salvation is this sort of church word, and I'm sure it's not a word you use on a regular basis, but it's a church word that describes the grace that God gives us in that first gap, the grace that moves us into relationship with God where we experience right standing in his eyes. But there's another church word and it's kind of a big church word. And don't worry, there's not going to be a test at the end of service. It's called sanctification. What does that mean? This just describes the process by which God's grace shapes us to become more like him. His grace is what brings us to him. But it's also his grace that makes us more like him. And for some of us, the reason that we've kept God at arm's distance, the reason that we've kept faith or church or whatever you want to label it, the reason we've kept it at arm's distance is because of the fact that uh, you felt like becoming more like Jesus was all up to you. 
that you just had to try harder, that you had to work harder. You're like, man, I'm trying to be like Jesus, but I keep falling short. And, and it just, after a while, you just start to get like, man, I keep failing. And you, you, you never realize it's actually God's grace that helps us become more and more like Jesus. And when you think that it's all up to you, and you think, I've better, I just got to be a better person. I got to do more good things. I got to love more. I got to work at this. I got to work at it. And you don't actually let God's grace change you from the inside out. You know what you, know what you start to feel? Guilt. You go, oh God, I know I should be measuring up, but I keep falling short. Here's what I should be doing. I fall short. I'm trying to close the gap, but God, I keep failing. I'm trying to be more like you, and yet I keep coming up short. It's just not working. And nobody likes to feel guilty. So do you know what happens when you start feeling guilty that you're not more like Jesus? You just try harder, right? And we've all been down this road at some point in our lives. For some reason, when we're feeling guilty, we feel like we need to try harder to work our way out of it. So I'm just going to try harder. And so we come up with a checklist of all the things that we need to do to try harder. Can I tell you, I have about 37 uh, journals that have the first page in them filled out sitting somewhere around my house. Because somewhere along the way, I went to a conference. I heard of somebody speaking about spiritual growth. And they're like, man, what you got to do is you got to journal. And I was like, all right, I'm going to journal. And then I did it for the first day. And then I'm like, oh, I hate journaling. <laughs> but I'm like, no, 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 I got to try harder. And then I feel guilty. I'm like, nope, I got to journal. So then I journal, I buy a new journal. I journal the first day. And then I just hate journaling, get rid of it. I got a bunch of those sitting around my house. I, I have read Genesis 1 more than anybody else that I know. Because every year on January 1st, I'm like, this is the year, baby. I'm going to read through the Bible in a year. And it does, it, I mean, it goes so well on January 1st. And by January 5th, I'm like, all right, I'm a couple days behind. And by the time I hit February, it's like, I got to read the whole book of Leviticus in one day. It's like, this is not very helpful, right? And so uh, we think, well, uh, you want to have a great spiritual life? You want to grow in your faith? You want to embrace the new you that God wants you to be? Here's the formula. Here's, here's the checklist. Here's the things that you got to do. This is what it looks like. These are the practices. Now hear me when I say Reading the Bible is a good practice. Prayer is a good practice. For some, journaling is a good practice. Uh, I heard someone at one point say, solitude, man. Every, every year, I take a solid week, and I go out to the woods by myself. My phone doesn't work. I don't have any Wi-Fi, and I just sit, and I just listen. I'm like, that won't make me more like Jesus. That will make me crazy. I will come back not human. Like, like it just depends on your wiring. And those are all good things to do, but we think, oh, here's the formula. I'm like, okay, pray, because Jesus prayed. That's a good thing, okay. But pretty soon it starts to feel like a burden. Instead of, instead of praying because I, I want to connect with Jesus, it's like, I got I to check the list because I got to be the new me God's created me to be. Uh, oh, and also uh, read your Bible because Jesus did that, and Jesus also memorized the Old Testament, so I, uh, now I got to memorize the Old Testament, okay. I got to work on that. He also witnessed to huge crowds, and he rode a donkey. I don't, I don't even know where to get a donkey these days. And uh, so I got to do that. And uh, by the way, he fasted, and uh, also there's this one verse where it says he withdrew to a quiet place, and so now I got to you know, withdraw to a quiet place. And another verse says he did it on a mountain, and it's like the closest mountain I know is a few hours away, and donkeys are slow. And and it gets exhausting, doesn't it? You're like, oh, I, I got to do all this stuff so that I can be the person God wants me to be. Now, please hear me. I'm not opposed to prayer. Prayer is a good thing. I'm not opposed to reading the Bible. I'm not opposed to journaling. I'm not opposed to solitude. I'm not opposed to any of those things. But these are vehicles. These are practices that will help us to become more like Jesus. They are not the measure in and of themselves. And sometimes we set them up as the measure. And you know what happens when we try harder and we try harder and we try harder? 
We get tired. It's exhausting. It's like, oh my gosh, this is the 27th year in a row that I've read Genesis 1 and haven't made it to Genesis 4. Right? It's, it's exhausting. And you know what happens when we get so tired that it just becomes unsustainable? We quit. It's like, I, I can't keep this up anymore. And then do you know what happens when you quit? You feel guilty. And then you feel guilty and you're like, after a season, you go, oh, I better try harder. January 1st, I'm going to read, read through the Bible in a year. I'm going to try harder. And then I get exhausted. And then I give up. And then I feel guilty about the fact that I gave up. So then I commit to just this time, I'm going to try even harder. And you get caught in this cycle, this vicious cycle. And folks, can we just do a little mass confessional here this morning? How many of you have ever felt this dynamic in your spiritual journey? I just, I feel guilty. I'm going to try harder. I quit. I can't do it. And then I feel guilty, right? Guilt leads to trying harder, which makes you tired. So you quit, which makes you just feel guilty. So you try harder. And that's why I believe that the verses that we're going to explore today can be so incredibly transformational for every single one of us. In fact, these verses are essentially a roadmap, a, a, a way to help us trust in God's process instead of in our own strength. And in Paul's letter to the people in Ephesians, we're going to be in what we have now as chapter and verse, the second chapter, verse, uh, verses 1 through 10. You could split these 10 verses up into three sections, right? The first section describes the before picture. Every diet pill late night infomercial has a before and after picture, right? And when you look at the before picture, it's kind of a hot mess. And then they're like, but you can be this. So uh, I heard a comedian once say, how do I become the before picture? Like, uh, I don't know, I want to get there. But this first section of verses, Paul describes the before picture. In fact, he says, this is the picture of your life before you met Jesus. Let me describe kind of what a hot mess you were before you met Jesus. This is the picture of our lives before God's grace has rescued us from our sin. And then he gets to the final section and he says, now here's the after picture, right? This is what the new you can look like when God's grace actually works in your life on a consistent basis. And the middle section describes the how. It's the process whereby you move from the before picture to the after picture, to the new you. And here's why this matters. You and I, we weren't just rescued from something. We were rescued for something. See, you could say this first section is what we are saved from. And the middle section describes what we're saved by. And this last section describes what we're saved for, what we're rescued for. And if we stop with going, thank you for rescuing from my sin, and I appreciate the grace that it took to get there, but we don't actually let grace change us and move us forward and be a part of something bigger than ourselves, then we miss out on a whole big chunk of what God created us for. And so let's check out the before picture together. Here's these first few verses. This is what we are saved from. Paul would say, this is what your life looked like before Jesus came in and you experienced his grace. And so he says this, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. That's you, that's me, that's every person in first century Ephesus. That's Paul himself, he includes himself in this. He says, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way. He's including himself. And Paul says, every single one of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very own nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. Paul says, this is the before picture. And he includes himself. He says, reminding us without the work of God's grace in our lives, the default setting is selfishness. The default setting is to 
build and protect my own kingdom. This is why your kids have never, ever, ever been taught the words no and mine. And yet somewhere along the way, they picked them up, didn't they? Pretty early on, they learned, I got a kingdom, it needs protecting. No, that's mine. What is that? The default setting in every one of us, before God's grace gets a hold of our hearts, we primarily think of ourselves. And as we get older, we become better, that we become better at filtering our words, filtering our behaviors. Pretty soon we start to learn as we get older, just from, you know, trial and, and, uh, and experience that, man, when I say that, that doesn't really go so well for me. I shouldn't say that anymore. It doesn't mean we've dealt with it in our own hearts, but we just, we've learned to filter our language. That people don't tend to respond very well when I say that. I think I'll stop saying that. When I behave a certain way, people don't respond well to that. I, I think I'll stop doing that. And yet, here's what you and I both know. If we don't deal with that in our own hearts and let God's grace actually change us, what happens is whenever we're stressed, when we experience pressure, when we experience pain, loss, grief, trials, difficulties, troubles, that stuff that's in us starts to leak out, doesn't it? And so the Apostle Paul says, this is what you were like. This is just who you were. That's the before picture. And it sounds all discouraging. And it sounds all like, man, that's kind of ugly. And yet this next small phrase is one of the most hopeful phrases that we read in all of the scriptures. This is, this is what we are saved by. And what we are saved by, Paul says, here's what you were saved from. And it's all ugly and it's all discouraging. But God. That's an incredible phrase. That's a big but. And I cannot lie. <laughs> Couldn't help it. It had to be done. But God is so rich in mercy. This is the past. This is what you looked like. This is what God saved you from. But God is so rich in mercy. He loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. This is something that's only reserved for people who are a part of the family. Jesus says, God says, because of Jesus, not anything you've done, because of Jesus, he's made you part of the family. He's seated you in heavenly realms. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us, as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. Paul says, we tried to become the new you all on our own. But because of God's love for you, you don't have to do it on your own. Isn't that good news? You don't have to try harder. You don't have to work at it. God just wants his love and his grace and his mercy to become so deeply embedded in your heart and in your life that you can't help but move towards the after picture. It's not because you're just trying harder. It's because you realize how good God is and how much he's done for you. At one point, Paul writes to followers of Jesus in the Roman Empire and says, don't you recognize it is God's kindness that leads you to repentance? It's God's kindness that leads you to want to change. It's not, God isn't guilting you to become the new you. God is leading you there with his love and his grace and his mercy. That's such good news. Guilt is a fantastic short-term motivator, right? It's why we get stuck in the cycle. It's great at getting us to do something in the short term. It's terrible at changing us from the inside out. And so there's three really important words that I want us to note in this middle section. Love, mercy, and grace. 
And love is the motivating factor for God. That's why at Jesus one point said this, that God so loved the world. God so loved each and every person that he sent his son into this world to become one of us. So that anyone who put their trust in him, anyone who said, God, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you be the leader of my life. I wanna be a part of your kingdom instead of building my own. Anyone who puts their trust in him. I, I believe in you, I trust in you. I will, I will do the things you ask me to do because I trust you. He says, they will not perish. They will not be lost to God, but they will experience eternity as a part of God's family. That is such good news. See, love motivates God to give us mercy and grace. And there's a difference between these. What's the difference between mercy and grace? Mercy is this, God not giving us what we deserve. We deserve something because we made the decision to say, God, I'm gonna live life my own way. It caused brokenness between us and God and us and one another. And what we deserved was God to judge that, for God to be separated from God. That's, that's what we experience. And God says, I am not going to give you what you deserve. I'm going to pardon you. But grace says this. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. This is God saying, not only am I going to pardon you from the things that you, you do deserve because of what you've done wrong, but I'm actually going to set you up for the after picture. Imagine if a, someone robbed a bank and they were caught and they're standing before the judge and they just beg for mercy. And the judge says, I'm going to give you a pardon. That's mercy. But grace is if the judge turned around and said, and on top of that, I recognize that the reason you stole is because of your poverty. And so now I'm going to give you a $10,000 grant and I'm going to set you up with a new job so that you live well into the future. That's called grace. See, because God loves you and me, Paul reminds us God is rich in both grace and mercy. His mercy rescues us from the before picture. His grace sets us up for the after picture. And so, here's this first section. What we are saved from. Who we used to be when we tried to set ourselves up as the leader of our own life. And then, the middle section. What we are saved by. Jesus took our sin upon himself. In his death, he overcame sin and death and offers eternal life to all of us. That is such good news. Here's the bad news. I get numb to that. Here's the bad news. You get numb to that, don't we? There's so many followers of Jesus who stop right there. And they go, man, I'm so grateful that God rescued me from who I was. And I'm so grateful that I don't have to earn it. And it's because of his grace. Thanks, God. And they never experience the fullness of life that comes with the after picture, the new you that God's created you to be. And I gotta admit, I'm often numb to this amazing good news. And that's why this third section is so powerful and so important as we put it all together. What we're saved from, what we're saved by, and what we are saved for. We're actually rescued so that we can do something with our lives. And so Paul continues and says this, for it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now, this is interesting because he talks about it's not by works that we're saved. And then he goes on and says, for we are God's masterpiece. Uh, he has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. All right, Paul, which is it? We're not saved by works, but we should do good works. Yes. Paul, that's confusing. Right? Let's walk through this. The goal for followers of Jesus is not simply that we are rescued from something. 
Jesus doesn't offer us his grace only so that we can experience it for ourselves. The goal for followers of Jesus is that we are rescued for something. Grace is what brings us to Jesus, but it's also his grace that helps us to become like Jesus. And here's how the Apostle Paul puts it in these verses. There's an order to this, right? He says, it is by grace that you're saved, through faith, not by good works. And then he says, but you should do good works. Here's where the message of Jesus takes a sharp left turn from almost every other religion, from every message we find in culture. Most of the time, what comes ringing through is this. Hey, be a better person. Do good. Do good works. Work harder. Be better. Do gooder. And then when you do that, you're going to discover faith. And then, and then as your faith grows, you'll be in right standing with God. That's the message that oftentimes comes through. That's our tendency. Every other world religion starts with that. You start with works, you get to faith, and then eventually you're in right standing with God. And that's why we get stuck in the crazy cycle, isn't it? Because we start with works. We start by trying harder. We have to give up. We feel guilty. We try again. And we just constantly get stuck in this loop. And instead, uh, if we do this in the proper order, uh, the good news of the message of Jesus is that this is not about what we have to do to somehow measure up to get to God. The message of the good news of Jesus is everything that God has done to get to us, to shower us with his grace. And when we do this in the proper order, we recognize, man, we're God's masterpiece. Uh, we're God's handiwork. He's created us anew, Paul says, which means he's, he's making us new. The new you is starting to emerge. And because of God's grace, he's building the new you. And what flows out of the new you is someone who lives and loves a lot more like Jesus. We don't have to work for grace, but we ought to work from grace. We ought to work out of grace. What we've done doesn't determine who we are, but once we know who we are, then we know how to live. It starts with grace that we can't earn, and it moves to faith. And faith is just saying, Jesus, I trust you enough to do what you ask me to do. And then we start to do good things. And so basically, now practically speaking, we go, well, what does that look like? I mean, it sure sounds like a great idea, but how does that sort of play itself out in my day-to-day -day life? Well, I'm glad you asked. For many of us, uh, I, I would say this. The secret is this. Surrender to God's power in your life. You say, uh, God, I believe that you have power to change me from the inside out. And I'm choosing to surrender to your way of living. I trust you enough to live my life the way that you asked me to live it. Now, I have to admit that so often in my life, I limit God's power in my life. I believe God's powerful. I believe there's nothing that's impossible for him or outside the realm of his ability to do. But there's often a disconnect between what I believe about God and the way that I live. In fact, maybe this sounds familiar to you. Any of these, might, you might fall into any one of these categories. I believe God wants to forgive me and restore me, but I often listen to God's enemy who tells me I'm unworthy and not good enough. I believe God's grace can wipe away my guilt, but I often end up carrying it around. I often end up seeing myself through the lens of what I've done instead of through the lens of what God has done for me. I, I believe God comforts me in my troubles, but I believe I can comfort myself more quickly through other ways. I believe God has a direction for my life that is worth following, but I often go my own way because I want to be in control. I believe God's provision is enough for me, but I often get impatient with God's timing. And for many of us, when we hear surrender to God's power, this is what it looks like. 
in our own minds, we think, okay, it's got to be, I'm gonna, Jesus, I'm just going to put you ahead of everything else. I'm going to put you ahead of everything. So it looks like this. Jesus, I'm going to put you ahead of my family. I'm going to put you ahead of my career. I'm going to put you ahead of my friendships. I'm going to put you ahead of every other area of my life. You first, Jesus. And here's what ends up happening with that. That's because we have this tendency to compartmentalize our lives. And when we make it an issue of priority and we just go, Jesus first, what we tend to do is, I'm going to go to church and check the Jesus box, and now I can live the rest of my life this week. Because that's how we think. We compartmentalize things. And so once we check off the Jesus box and we've done that, now we can get on with the rest of them. But experiencing the power of grace of Jesus in my life isn't simply a matter of priority and checking the Jesus box before any of the others. Unfortunately, the, this really is a picture of us just trying harder. Well, I'm just going to try harder. I better put Jesus at the front and then I'm good. Instead, when we hear surrender to God's power, it should look a lot more like this. Jesus is at the center of my family. And Jesus, I want you to be at the center of my career. And I want you to be at the center of my friendships. I want you to be at the center of every other area of my life so that who you are, your power and your grace, bleeds its way into everything I do, into who I am as a person. And what if, instead of saying, I put Jesus before my family, I started saying, Jesus, I want you to be in the center of my family. Instead of saying, God, I, I want to put you before my career, I said, Jesus, I want you to be in the center of my career. I, I want to use, because of your grace, whatever career I'm in, may, may I reflect your love and your grace to the people that are around, my coworkers. Jesus, be in the center of my friendships. I think it's a much better picture of what it looks like to not only be saved by grace, but to live by grace. That's what it looks like when we access the power and the grace that's available to us. And... It's why Paul would pray this incredible prayer over followers of Jesus in the first century, and it applies to us as well. He would say this, I pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. Recognize, Paul says, it's grace through faith that leads to works. Grace, that incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him, put our trust in him, start to live our lives because we trust that his way is the best way. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. And now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. That's, a, that's exactly the picture of what we're looking at. Jesus in the center. And Jesus, fill my family. Jesus, fill my career. Jesus, fill my friendships. Jesus, fill every other area of my life with you. And God's, uh, Paul says, I, I want you to understand that God has the power to fill all things everywhere with himself. And then he kind of reminds us and says, by the way, it's the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. That's the same power that he wants to work in your life. And what if we decided to fully surrender our lives to the grace of Jesus, not only to rescue us from something, but to al allow his power to rescue us for something, that our lives would be fully surrendered reflection of Jesus in his, in his power in our families, our careers, our friendships, and every other area of our lives. What's amazing is it starts with grace, God giving us, doing for us more than we could ever deserve. Then it moves to faith. God, because of your grace, I trust you enough to do what you asked me to do, to live how you asked me to live. And the way that he asks us to live then is to do good works, to do good things here in this world, to fully surrender every area of my life to his loving lordship. 
and I do those good things not so that I can become part of his family. I'm already in his family. I do those things because I already am. And when I know who I am, then I know how to live. When I do that, I'll discover I'm being made new. The new you is taking shape as you surrender to the way of Jesus. And I want to encourage you, if you've never made that decision, you can say yes to that invitation. See, if I could be so bold as to summarize the scriptures, it's this. The message that comes ringing through cover to cover. God is building a family and he wants you in it. God is building a family. He wants you in it. And here's the message. We were created by God to exist in loving community with God and with one another. And yet, starting with the very first human beings to every one of us today, at some point we said, God, thanks, but no thanks. I got this. I think I'll do it my own way. And it caused brokenness between us and God and brokenness between us and each other. And there is a lot of scripture that backs that up. But the reality is, you can just look at your own experience and go, yep, nailed it. I've made some decisions. I haven't lived up to my own standards, let alone God's. And I sense a distance between me and God and oftentimes a distance between me and others. And so God sent his son. God loved the world so much that he sent Jesus into the world that whoever puts their trust in him says, God, I trust you and your way of living could be a part of God's family forever. And then Jesus allowed himself to be put to death. His body is laid in a tomb and according to multiple eyewitness accounts, Jesus rose from the dead. He overcomes death. And then Paul says that same power that raised Jesus from the dead, you're invited to experience that in your own life to reshape you and make you the new you that God's created you to be. And you're invited to be a part of God's family forever. And you don't behave your way in. You don't earn your way in. You don't good works your way in. It is because of his grace that that invitation is extended to you. And if you want to say yes to that, you can just agree with this simple prayer that we're going to pray in just a second. For others of you, you'd say this. I've been following Jesus. I've said yes to Jesus. I recognize all that I've been rescued from and all that I've been rescued by. But I guess I never really understood what I've been rescued for. That it's not just for me, but that God's rescued me, made me his masterpiece, called me so that I can actually be a part of something bigger than myself so that my life would reflect his grace and his goodness to the world around me. And maybe today is a challenge for you to say, I've got the first two parts. God, help me not only to be rescued by grace, but help me to live by grace day to day. Regardless of where you fall, in either of these groups, you can just say yes to the invitation of God by agreeing with this prayer as we close. God, please forgive my sins. Forgive me for the times I've walked away from you, and I'm so grateful that you never walk away from me. And I just want to say yes to your invitation. Make me your son. Make me your daughter. And help me to follow your way of living as best as I know how from this moment on. And God, uh, I pray for every one of us who are doing our best to follow you, who recognize what we've been rescued from and what we've been rescued by, but maybe never fully stepped into what we've been rescued for. And I pray that you would help us not just to be saved by grace, but to walk by grace, to live by grace. That it would be so evident that it would really, truly permeate every part of our lives and that our lives will become a reflection of your love to the world around us. We commit this week to you. We pray this in your name. Amen.